This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Peter Jackson's 2002 film, The Two Towers. I just want to start by saying this franchise we've talked about it before but i can't speak enough about how much of a miracle it is that this this film franchise finished and is is as good as it is um i watched i just finished watching like at least six seven hours of appendices over the last couple <laughs> days so i'm very much aware of kind of a lot of the struggles that went into it so i'm, I'm ready to talk about this movie i uh did not watch any of the appendices on purpose because i was like i know you're gonna watch them and we could talk about them uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this watch. I uh, had lots of observations that I uh, hadn't made in the past. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, Sean Axton is awesome and I love seeing Sam. So I, that was one of my major takeaways is that Sam and Frodo's plotline is, is amazing. We talked about that in the books, but then I think maybe that heightened my my appreciation for it in the, sh- in the movie as well. Whereas I, I think in the past, I kind of preferred the action of the other plotline. But in this one, I was really dialed into the sort of the personal relationship between those two characters. So, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, 100% agree. Sam Sam is amazing. How that speech at the end, man. It, oh, my God. Every time right in the feels. But we'll get there. Oh, and, you know, like Andy Serkis is Gollum is like legendary at this point. Like he he has changed. He changed mocap. He not only himself has been a million other characters like this, but just I think the way these characters are done was like pioneered by this movie yeah i mean it was early days for for this kind of mocap i mean it, it had been done i i think in the, in the appendices peter jackson talks about how even disney back in like the 30s was using people's performances on film and then kind of just like using using that as a reference point for his animation so it's been like motion capture has kind of been an idea for a long time but you know early days with this kind of technology in like 99 or 2000 uh, they were definitely creating an entire form of motion capture there and, and just the, the tweaks that they were doing and, and innovations that they were making really, I mean, you can see it now. It's, it's a norm to have in these big franchise action movies to have a motion capture like yeah. Star Wars or Marvel. Well, think about, think of, yeah, think about Marvel, man. Like so many of the characters in Marvel are done using this kind of technology. Let's right. see, I mean, think about like uh, Rocket Raccoon, for example, is it like a purely done this way right well or, or, or the, i would say like like the hulk like bruce like like yeah. mark ruffle is actually in there acting yeah, thanos. and they just take his performance and yeah thanos yeah it's, it's amazing what they can do and and this was definitely a stepping stone for sure so these extended editions are not for the faint of heart huh i remember you <laughs> yeah. texted me and you're like it's like four hours <laughs> yeah i posted a picture of the runtime to uh instagram yeah it was it's i was impressed i'm like holy shit this is gonna be a four hour session here <laughs> it's it's a, it's so dense too i had forgotten many of the things that were in this movie i the mention of Entwives in the extended edition <laughs> I, I was surprised that that was the thing in the books and i totally that had just blown past me so many times yeah this one i think has a little a few more departures from the from the books than we got in fellowship 
Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, not true up and down the, the board for Fellowship, but there was definitely some stuff added and changed and and uh, some plot lines for, like, Aragorn that were completely added in. So that was something I was I was taking note of and, and noticing that um, is, as faithful as these adaptations feel, they, they do have changes. Almost every scene from the book is in here with added scenes as well. You know, yeah. things are changed here and there very slightly. But the added scenes are very interesting to me because they did a lot of going into Tolkien's appendices in the Silmarillion and like kind of, you know, there was some wiggle room there and they made they kind of took some liberties. But how did those work for you? How did did you feel like like so a lot of that? Like, did you have any issues with them or did you enjoy them? I think it, it depends on scene to scene. I, I remember there were some where I was like, oh, this is a great addition and I made note of it. And then there were others where I thought like eh, this felt like a little pointless or or excessive in ways um there are a few times where i said like this is sort of a bad uh sign for things to come with what we would eventually get in the hobbit uh movies every now and then i could see i could see a few things that that telegraph that to me um i'll try and touch on them as we go one of the other things i i wanted to mention is that we have just watched uh season eight episode three uh, like last week of Game of Thrones, and a lot of people made the comparisons to the Battle of Helm's Deep. Now, we aren't going to talk about that Game of Thrones battle much because we don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched it, um, but I just couldn't help but think of it during the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? Like, it, we actually watched them pretty close together, you know, in, within a week apart, and and so that was very fresh in my mind, and I, ha- I kept comparing the two, and um, I want to touch on a few things here and there as we get to it. I'll try and do it in a way as, you know, without spoiling the Game of Thrones episode as much as possible. It was hard not to think about the fact that the, you know, the battle for, the battle that happened in, in Game of Thrones almost spoils a little something there. In case. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that battle <laughs> in Game of Thrones. It's going to be tough I don't know to if the title about. is a spoiler. Is this title of the battle a spoiler? I don't know. I almost said it. Anyway, yeah. uh, it's hard. It was hard not to think about it, and it's also very interesting to think about the amount of time that was put into this versus the amount of time that was put into that. You know, fifty to five days of shooting for the Game of Thrones battle was absolutely a ton of shooting. But and mm-hmm. I know they built up huge, massive sets and everything for it. Something about the scale of this Helm's Deep battle still feels bigger to me, and it still feels. Uh, I don't know. We we can get more into it, but without trying to spoil any Game of Thrones stuff. Yeah, but. let's say that until we get to the battle, because that battle happens towards the end of the movie, right? Like in the last right. quarter. And I, Miguel Sabachnik came out and said that he studied Helm's Deep, so that's definitely yeah. why we were feeling that that influence. Yeah, I believe it. So I don't know if we're going to say specific favorites or anything, but we did mention last episode that like we you know our favorite Lord of the Rings film. Maybe we should reserve and kind of keep talking it through as we go until we get done with return of the king just to have you know fresh open minds but um i kept hearing in the appendices how much the filmmakers and everyone involved was talking about how how difficult it was to pull off the middle chapter of this because there's really no beginning and there's really no end it's yeah. it's just like the middle chapter and trying to narratively thread that in was really tough so they they had to admit that like i think some of the liberties we were talking about were taken in order to kind of give conf- like ending of conflicts at the end of each storyline. And that's the other thing is the split storyline. This, you know, the first movie didn't have the split storylines. Um, and then that's, you know, that's another added complication of having three separate adventures going on. It, it's funny because uh, when writers talk, often talk about the muddy middle, the saggy middle, you know, inter, in, 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 whatever name you want to use for it. And it's, essentially it's like the middle of a book. And if you look at a trilogy, is this, and this, this, this trilogy really is kind of one big book. Um, and if you look at it that way, that's like we're right in that saggy middle. 
and a lot of people talk about it because it's like it's necessary for the story and a lot of a lot of important things happen in the middle of books but it can often feel like you're in this kind of bog and you you know you have to get to the end and the the the, the beginning is very flashy and exciting and you just kind of, it's kind of it becomes like tr- like kind of drudgery a little bit and you have to combat that constantly because you never want the reader to feel that but um, it's interesting to talk about because it's like I, I can see when the filmmakers looking at this middle section and going like, uh, you know, we don't have all the excitement at the end. and We don't have all the excitement in the beginning of introducing the characters. So what are we going to do with this middle chunk here? And I, to me, it just reminded me of that, like that same problem. And not to mention that gives me the the, you know, the feeling of what's actually going on in the film. Like a lot of a lot of Sam and Frodo's story is that drudgery like that. They're they're going yeah. through that kind of that same thing. Like they're just like drudging. They're, all they're doing is climbing through rocks in this entire movie almost. But there's that, and then and then you know, Marion Pippin's storyline is is in the forest with a slow talking tree. Yeah, well, and and I don't know if it's getting ahead of ourselves or whatever, but uh, they completely omit the Shelob storyline from this movie. And I remember coming out of the movie when I originally saw it, and talking to some people who were like huge book fans who complained about that. They're like, "Where's Shelob? Shelob's supposed to be in Two Towers." They they didn't you know, and so. And I remember thinking, like, who cares? But it is interesting because it feels like, to me, Shelob in the books was actually a really nice uh, climax for the Frodo and Sam story. And instead, they try and give that to the expanded Faramir stuff, which is completely redone for the, for the movie in, in a different mm-hmm. way. Um and I think it, I think it works. It just is, it's just different. And, um, I, mm-hmm. I don't know, I think it'll be interesting to talk about like how, how this Faramir plotline works for us compared to what we got in the book. The filmmakers make very interesting points on this in the appendices because it's clear that that was done, you know, on purpose. There's a reason why Shelob wasn't in the ending here. And just to kind of give you the quick, the quick version of it here, and we'll talk about it more, is just that they felt that cutting between the intense hyper action of Helm's Deep and cutting between but from that into the hyper intense conflict going on with the confrontation with Shelob was just too much to ask of an audience like yeah. investing emotionally in. So th- that was kind of like their reasoning behind it. Yeah. We'll and as I was it. talking, ab- as I was talking about it, honestly, I was thinking like, yeah, that probably would be kind of a, kind of a lot. And I agree with that because you would have this big over the top action and then you'd be cutting over and you'd be trying to build suspense and have a different sort of very action heavy scene playing out. And, uh, yeah, it, it would undercut the Shelob scene and then the Shelob scene would undercut the Helm's Deep scene. And honestly, I think both would probably be weaker for it. Um, it does, it does affect the Sam and Frodo plotline though, and what they would go Mm -hmm. through in this book. So I still think it's, it's worth interesting. It's interesting to look at. And, um, we talked about why, you know, in, in how we weren't a big fan of like how these two plot lines are separated in the book. But like, I think clearly maybe this was the reason Tolkien did it instead of cutting between the two, like, cause you can go through an entire book that leads up to Helm's Deep and then the Battle of Isengard. And then you can go over to the other book and go all the way through it before you get to Shelob. And then at that point, you're ready for another climax. Definitely understand that. And yeah, and it's interesting that, that Tolkien, you know, he he intended it all as one story, but it was, you know, it was split as book three and book four. So they yeah. are kind of separate books, kind of separate stories that are going on in the same, you know, timeline at some point. Um, the Speaking of timeline, the other point that Peter Jackson made just really quickly was... Um, in terms of the lore and in terms of the timeline, I guess the battle of she- with Shelob is going on at the same time as the battle at uh, Minas Tirith. So that was another reason, I guess, to hold it until Return of the King. 
Oh, yeah, you're right. Because uh, in the books, uh, the t- the timeline. I think at one point there's a there's a shout out to the timeline, and it does seem like the Sam and Frodo plotline has surpassed our main plotline significantly. So yeah, that's interesting. It's almost like they really mapped it out timeline wise to, to to figure out where things should fall. You know, I I give a ton of credit for Peter Jackson and like his adaptation of this material, how much he cares about the material, and um, it's so weird to see that he is the one who, in my opinion, butchered the Hobbit movies so badly when you see what he Let's, did for this trilogy. But that's like another whole can of worms, I guess we should we should say, because yeah. we might eventually cover the Hobbit films. And I, th- I know there's a lot of like why that happened. And it, I don't yeah. know like every story, but I know that it's worth digging into. So if we get to the Hobbit films down the road, um, that'll be really interesting to talk about. But in, in you know, ignoring that for now, what happens in the future it's really cool to see somebody come in and do these movies who really cares and takes the time and effort to bring the story to life. Overall, it's an A plus effort, you know, and I, and something that I look back on as, as a high watermark for adaptations, which is something we talk about all the time on this podcast. So I think it's worth noting. So, yeah, uh, just to address the Hobbit stuff, we're going to, you know, we'll talk about it in our coverage, but something I just want to say is that Peter Jackson took seven years to make these three films. Um, and th- that's where I'll leave it for now is he had an enormous amount of prep time an enormous amount of, of planning went into it. And, and, you know, uh, we'll talk about it when we get to the Hobbit, but he didn't have quite <laughs> as much time. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and personally, I don't let the Hobbit really dampen my spirits on this trilogy because it's just, I, I, on, I have, I've, you know, I've watched each of the Hobbit films once, I think, and I don't really plan on revisiting you know there's things that are all right in those movies and and like when the trailer originally came out for the first hobbit movie i thought that i just saw the trailer for my favorite movie of all time and um i mean needless to say it was a a letdown but yeah these movies are still incredible to me and it's just the the absolute magnitude of of three films shot back to back over like a year and a half and the amount of effort all of new zealand made this movie it was every single person in new zealand was basically working on this movie well i think they're Anyone all in the credits <laughs> yeah it's absolutely i mean how long are the credits like 20 minutes yeah it they're wild okay so starting off we're going to try to go chronologically but we'll do we'll you know i'm sure shoot around starting off with the battle with the balrog which is not in the book which is technically a change right off the bat how do you feel about that yeah i mean uh we see Gandalf being an absolute badass, uh, falling, grabbing his sword, battling. I mean, it's talked about later when Gandalf tells the story to to the you know to Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas. Um, and instead of doing that, they sh- they kind of show it. Although he does actually tell the story later too, so we get like a mix of both. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought it was cool. It's like if you're making a if you're making a film and you can show something, just show it because it's it's gonna everyone's gonna want to see it. If you think about how the two towers started for us, it started with the death of Vormir in the book. And yeah. in this, what what would have been the real starting hook to get you invested in the movie if if not the Balrog scene? There was an interesting callback um, at the very, very beginning where they're, we're kind of flying through the mountains and you actually hear um, some of the like lines echoing in the mountains. Um, which I thought was a, mm-hmm. was an interesting kind of clever addition. Now I I don't know if that's in the original version or just the extended. Like I I can't remember. Um, but I, I thought it was clever to sort of call back to the first movie, and it's like almost like a previously on, but without actually doing that's, a previously on. <laughs> that's exactly what I feel like it is. That moment where they reshow the "you shall not pass" moment and Frodo's yeah. reaction and all that was really just like a get reinvested because we're right back in it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it was a good a good choice just from a filmmaking perspective. Like that's a hook that'll get your audience invested, and it's a huge moment. And like it looks good. If we if you want to talk about the CG, like the you know, it, it for the time, I think it still holds up. And yeah, you know, it's it a take up. it takes place in the dark, and there's a lot of smoke, so that that Which helps. helps. Yeah, I have a synopsis here. I'll read a, a bit of it. Awakening from a dream of Gandalf the Grey battling the Balrog, Frodo Baggins and his friend Samwise Gamgee find themselves lost in the Emin Mule and soon become aware that they are being stalked by Gollum, the former owner of the One Ring. After capturing him, a sympathetic Frodo decides to use Gollum as a guide to Mordor, despite Sam's objections. This is where I my, my observations about Sean Astin being great, about Gollum being so iconic, and, and that, you know, Andy Serkis is... Um, it, it, this is actually my reminder that this is the first real introduction we get to this character of Gollum, because we see him briefly in Fellowship, but he doesn't really have any scenes. And then, right. it, you know, in the timeline, the stuff in Hobbit comes first. And a lot of us read The Hobbit growing up. So I think that was fresh in our minds. But this is the first time we see Gollum really on, on screen in this, you know, entire series of movies. Um, so, you know, sometimes I forget that, that I was like, oh, yeah, that was in Two Towers. I, I don't know. It feels like that should have been in Fellowship, but it's not. So Andy Serkis wasn't cast as Gollum when they originally had that shot of of Gollum in the first in the Fellowship of the Ring film, right. and you can kind of see if you look at the kind of the design, even though it's shrouded in shadow and darkness, you can see the changes that they made. And they, what they actually did was that they took that original design for Gollum and they took Andy Serkis's face and they blended it together to kind of get the what we see here in Two Towers. Huh. Which I just thought was really, I mean, that's fun and and like that's the added effort that I think really makes things pop in this film. Uh, you keep talking about Sam and you keep talking about Sean Astin, but I, and I remember you talking in our fellowship coverage about about Elijah Wood as Frodo and how you yeah. never really got on board with it. And I wanted to know, like, how, where do you stand on it at this point? I know uh, yeah. originally you said before that you felt like sometimes he was overacting or something like that. Uh, I don't know if it's overacting. Well, yeah, maybe at times. Um, I, I think he's also got kind of like a kind of like an emo vibe. Um, that I don't get from Frodo in the books. Um, like Elijah Woods br brings a, a real kind of like angstiness to Frodo. Um, however, I do want to give him immense amounts of credit and say that I may have been too harsh. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I still don't feel like his is the strongest performance that we're getting here. Um, I think if you, even if you look at the pair, I think I think Sam is... I mean, it's just the more indelible performance to me. The one that's more memorable, ultimately. Frodo, the character, is memorable, but the performance, I think, is more is more Sam's performance. So uh, they aged Frodo down in the movies, which we mm -hmm. know because Frodo's supposed to be like in his 30s or something like that in in the books. Well, Some, look I like mean, he's somewhere in his 30s, but, he, but he's much older because the whole Hobbit how, aging thing, right? How old is he actually then? Do you know? He's 33 at the birthday party and 50 when they when they leave because 17 years right. goes by. <laughs> okay, yeah. So he was he was 30 and now he's 55. So yeah, I, I guess the idea that that Tolkien was writing a 50 year old character, 55 year old character, versus you know yeah. a th it, whatever Elijah Woods Frodo was supposed to be in the film uh, will change the character a little bit. Um, that's never bothered me at all. The the aging down. Um, and I, I think I've always been sold on, on Elijah Wood. Ultimately, like, I really buy it, and I've, I've always loved it and felt like a... I felt like he's given, like, a great performance when he's being seduced by the ring, or he, he can... Yeah. He, he seems, like, very, very soft-spoken, but when he has to turn from the ring, he's... I think he nails those scenes uh, when he kind of flips to the evil side. 
And, uh, I mean, his eyes are just astoundingly large. They look like anime How eyes. How blue? And I think Dude, he's got the bluest they're eyes. They're so blue. I, I, he, you can see why he was cast for this role. Like, there's so much emotion that can come along when you have eyes like that. So I can see, yeah. I can see why they did it. Um, and and I, I, like I said, I, I don't want to harp on it too much because ultimately it is a good performance. For me, it's 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 a little off at times when like he, um, he's dealing with hardship and like uh, not not necessarily with the ring. He'll make these just like faces that are kind of ridiculous sometimes. And I don't know, man. It's just every now and then. I mean, there's a reason yeah. he's been memed a million times, right? Like him making funny faces and gifts and stuff. Like it's 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 kind of a thing. I actually also just like to this is a side note, but I love Elijah Wood as a person at this point. Like he's really crafted the career that he wanted from from the success of this film. He's like gone on to produce things and and the the roles that he's taken on are weird it's kind of like daniel radcliffe at this point daniel radcliffe yeah. is also doing the same thing they they're just taking on these these really interesting weird That's roles that that i don't think that like they're just making interesting and fun choices because they've i feel like they've done they've proved to the world that they can do the big big franchise stuff and they want to do roles that seem fun to them and I think that's awesome, and and they just seem like really cool guys. I mean, he does. I, I really like him as a person, and I've listened to him on like different podcasts, and I've seen him on some stuff. He did some stuff with Kevin Smith that I saw that was really interesting, and he seems like he truly is a fan of cinema and film. He knows his shit, um, and he he's very aware of where the Lord of the Rings sits in sort of cinematic history, and I think he's been a good... Uh, sort of champion for that and then also um he's he's been openly critical about the hobbit films and i think that that takes a little bit of uh sort of personal i don't know fortitude to come out against a series that you're connected to in that way you know like it's i'm sure that there are people who are like what the fuck you know tow the company line call it good or whatever but he's come out and talked about like why those movies are bad so it's interesting to hear that right um, so yeah, yeah. I just, I, I, this has nothing to do with him as a person. I think he's great. And I think he's he's been an amazing actor for a while and has been really, really good in a lot of other films. Um, so uh, yeah, let's, I just wanted to get that out there. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So Elijah, if you're listening, we like you a lot. And uh, we're, we're a fan. We're fans. Back into the summary here. Meanwhile, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli pursue the Urukai to save their companions, Merry and Pippin. The Urukai are ambushed by the Rohirrim the exiled army of Rohan, while the two hobbits escape into Fangorn Forest and encounter the Ent Treebeard. Aragorn's group later meets the Rohirrim and leader Eomir, who reveals that their king Theoden is being manipulated by Sauron's servant Grima Wormtongue into, into turning a blind eye to Saruman's forces running rampant in Rohan. While tracking down the hobbits in Fangorn, Aragorn's group encounters Gandalf, who, after some, succumbing to his injuries while killing the Balrog and Moria, has been resurrected as Gandalf the White to help save Middle-earth. Okay, so there's a lot here. Um, I think there's a bunch of added scenes in two particular areas. One is uh, Merry and Pippin and with the orcs. Um, I think there's some stuff there that that gets cut from the theater theatrical release. Um, and I can see why they cut it, because it's like ultimately it's not super necessary, but there's some good stuff here, and I think we get a really good look at some orcs up close talking to one another. And um, I was really uh, taken with how how good these orcs look, how how excellent the costuming and makeup is. Um, their eyes with their contacts they have in there are just really striking looking. Um, it, it just wanted to call that out. Really good. There's only a few times where it seems like maybe the especially the orc eyes like necks don't actually move in like in a functional way because um, they're kind of thick. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, ultimately it's all it's all really good, and I was impressed with it. Um, and then we also get a bunch of added stuff with Aomir and uh, the Rohirrim that I think it's a cut from the the two towers uh, theatrical release because I I remember a lot of this stuff not making a ton of sense, and it's because all of this side plot of Aomir finding Theoden's son and uh, and, and all this stuff like I think that was all cut if I'm remembering correctly. I think some of it for sure. I think we do see like Eowyn laying over top of him and they talk about the fact that he died, but like going and finding him and him still being alive to to be brought back. Yeah, because the first time we see Amir in the theatrical release, correct me if I'm wrong, is when the the when Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas see them in the in the movie. That's the I think so. So I think everything that that, that happens before this is not in the theatrical version. Yeah, I, I think you're yeah. right too. I haven't seen the the theatrical version in such a long time. I for some I only watched the extended editions nowadays, so I couldn't tell you <laughs> honestly a lot of the differences. Yeah, no, I feel you. I just want to shout out also the there's some truly horrific looking orcs getting born from sacks in the scenes with, with Saruman that uh, I just want to, it's straight out of a horror movie and it looks really good. <laughs> yeah, he goes far with like the I, I don't know if it's it's not necessarily gore but like the gruesome whatever Mary has to drink when he says like oh he needs some water that yeah. shit is disgusting. <laughs> uh like they go pretty na- they go pretty far with the nasty stuff uh which i i yeah, think it looks is, like it's just dirty wine to me <laughs> it was like syrupy it was like thick yeah maybe i did want to talk about the the prosthetics and everything just what a workshop we talked about it in the first episode or, or for our fellowship coverage way back when but it's unbelievable the 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 scale of what they were able to pull off and a small i mean you know small ish production studio in in New Zealand, they they like a ton of the stuff that you see, like the the visual effects and the practical effects that you see are coming from what a workshop. There's so much praise to be given to them for for their efforts in this in this franchise because it's amazing. They they absolutely killed it. The prosthetics are they hold up a hundred percent. Everything looks great, and all those actors had to put on all those prosthetics every day. It's it's yeah, it's, it's absolutely wild. amazing. Uh, I agree. Uh, very, very good. Um, I did want to talk about, so we get, um, we get also Aragorn kicking the helmet here, um, yeah. which I've, I've seen the behind the scenes stories of basically he breaks his toe or his foot or something like that here when he kicks this helmet. And so his reaction of like crying out in pain is real. <laughs> and that's the take they end up using. Uh, so that's always been a pretty funny story. I remember the the funny thing is apparently they had the shot that they had a pretty good one. They, they did four kicks and the third one was pretty good. But but the Peter Jackson was like, you want to you want to give it one more? And on the fourth one, he broke his toes and then cried out. And that's the take that's in the movie. You know, it's such a funny little set story now. And and they actually talked about injuries on the set. Um, Orlando Bloom fell off of a horse and the the size double for Gimli fell on top of him and broke a he broke a rib. And so all of those shots that you see that are of the uh, of the, like the company, the you know Gimli, Aragorn, Legolas running, they're all injured. Even the the size double, like he like had a knee injury. So Aragorn is running on broken toes. Legolas is running with broken ribs, and then and then the size double is is running with a, a hurt knee. So they're all Damn. like hobbling, and and all of those aerial shots, all of the shots where they're running around, it's it's amazing. It's just funny Man. set stories like that. Speaking of aerial shots, that some of the aerial shots in this movie are incredible and are just like, I mean, there's a reason that this is sort of like New Zealand's introduction to the rest of the world. And like now it's become this huge tourist destination. I think these films are really tied to that. 
And that's because it, they just show off New Zealand in a way that is, is truly incredible. And I love that they have, you can tell that it's not necessarily the actor sometimes it's somebody down, you know, wearing the costumes, but it looks really, really good. And, and sometimes it probably is the actor. So, um, and then we see like a lone horse, lone horse out in the middle of this giant landscape and like stuff like that. It, it always just looks really good. These shots are absolutely amazing. Those huge establishing shots of like where they're going and, and, it's it that's yeah i want to go to new zealand because i love these movies so much because i would love to yeah. see these these hey, locations and it's amazing world con world con is in dublin this year but next year it's in new zealand <laughs> i wonder what a flight to new zealand costs but that would be amazing yeah, that'd be so much it. fun <laughs> oh so when saruman first appears they put they they i'm pretty sure and tell me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure they actually overlay saruman talking and saying the same lines as ian mckellen um, yeah and and it's like this weird effect where like both are talking at the same time and is that just to trick us or is there like a a, a plot reason why those voices would would be coming out at the same time i think it was to get back to the source material like that was their way of nodding to the source material where they thought it was saruman and, and like that was the that was the reason and yeah they definitely they talked about that as well in the appendices they they had both of them record the lines and then mixed it but apparently it was super wonky it took it took like uh, tons of attempts in order to in order to actually get it to sound like pretty good uh and i think it works and the, the actual final version of it works pretty well in terms of talking about like landscapes and, and new zealand uh Edoras, where they have where they build the golden hall and the city of Edoras, where where the basically where everyone all the all the men of rohan are uh that they actually built that city basically it's like flat lands around and there's a hit one lone hill with mountains in the background which like perfectly matched the description of what tolkien described and then they actually built the golden hall up there they built that entire city and it looks just incredible think about logistically think about how to build how you get that done that's like takes so many years of effort to just build that just like they did with the shire it's amazing so to get back to the summary, Aragorn's group travels to Rohan's capital city, Edoras, where Gandalf releases Theoden from Saruman's influence and Wormtongue is banished. After learning about Saruman's plans to wipe out Rohan with his Urukai army, Theoden decides to move his city to Helm's Deep, an ancient fortress that has provided refuge to Rohan's people in times past. I gotta stop you there so I can talk about some stuff that happens. Um, so one of the things we were going to try and track, I remember, and, and throughout the books and the movies... They they do a lot with Gandalf saying like oh that Gandalf the Grey that is what I was called and like acting like he doesn't know who that is doesn't remember much about his life kind of pretending like he's a different person now right like we get a lot of that but I think the moment where it's like okay this is old this is old Gandalf and it actually kind of works in that sense too because I think it's almost reassuring to the audience that this is still the Gandalf we know and love is when he winks at Aragorn about the staff. He says, oh, you yeah. wouldn't deny an old man his walking stick. Aragorn's like, really? And then like he looks over at him, he does this little wink. Ian McKellen's a great like actor with his eyes and stuff. I think there's been like whole videos about it. He's amazing. But I think that moment is 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 a reassurance to the audience as well that this is the same Gandalf. Regardless of whatever they just said, like this is the same guy. Right. And I think it's just it, it I think the book kind of does the same thing. So they went along with that because ultimately he says in the book, he says things about how he's kind of a different person now. And, oh, they used to call me Gandalf. Yes. But ultimately, like, that's not really delivered on. They, they it's it's Gandalf still. It's just he's aged. You know, he's been through it. So we get actually a lot of extra sort of Grima worm tongue stuff here. Uh, we see him creeping on Eowyn. We, we, we see him... Um, 
talking for Theoden to 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 Gandalf and in the, the group and and um, I don't know the, he had like a little posse of guys that they have to beat up to try who try and take the weapons and um, I don't know I just wanted to get your what was your take on and that Greenwood performance and this guy and and how he fits into this story. So obviously I hate him creeping on AON just from like a moral standpoint. It's disgusting. It's gross. And like, yeah. it's very, you know, stalkerish. Um, but he, I really enjoy what he does with Theoden and the, like the manipulation that they're able to show and Theoden being aged like that and him like whispering in the ear of the king and, and kind of yeah. just speaking for him, whether he's saying things or not. Uh, I think it's super, it's always been really effective to me. And I think that that is you you buy into Theoden being, you know, under a trance basically, and we do get uh, once 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 Theoden is back to normal and he's sort of gotten his sword back in a really epic moment where they're like you need a, you should hold a sword and you know maybe that's very pro killing people but um it's epic right in this moment and we see Theoden goes to use it on Grima he's like well the first person I'm gonna kill is this little bastard Grima Warntown well it's like because of his he basically had his son kill his son was killed in the battle that Grima right didn't like there's something that was going on like basically like grima gave them like bad information or like yeah he, his son is dead because of grima indirectly yeah. i believe so in the book it is it is gandalf who stays his hand but in the movie they changed it to aragorn right. um what did you think of that change well i love that that the change to make it the the bonds of men you know how like gondor will call for aid at one point and like the idea of men being there for each other, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. And Gandalf, you know, of course, Gandalf would do that in the story because he's Gandalf. But I think Aragorn doing it, it kind of adds another layer to his character. It's slowly like building in like how much Aragorn cares about the because the, he stays behind and he, he didn't need to him and Legolas and Gimli didn't need to for the battle to come. They stay behind and and like clearly that she's showing how much he cares about the realm of men and, and the continued future. Yeah. Uh, so I mean I'm okay with it. I I think they're they're trying to add some more um, sense that Aragorn is going to be a good leader. I think they're setting up the Return of the King in that sense, and they're showing him to be merciful. Uh, so I I can see why they did it. We already know that about Gandalf. I don't think you need, we need to see Gandalf being like wise and merciful. Um, but it's also an open question of whether or not it's a good idea because Grima immediately goes to Sauron, tells him everything that happened, and you know what I mean. So. Whether when I was a good idea to release Grima, like they could have also just like imprisoned him, but they probably have some sort of prison there, right? Uh, why did they just let him free? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I don't know. There's something about like we talked about before, like something about this mercy that we keep seeing. Like it, in general, Frodo and Sam should have kept Gollum on the on the rope. You know, they should have kept him restrained or kept him a more watchful yeah. eye on him because like clearly you can't well, trust they, that guy. Sam always. They knew. did make a good point that the noise he was making was was going to be a problem. And they have to, he has to be able to talk because he has to be able to show him where to go, you would think. So is there any way to have him not screaming constantly? I think um, it was the elven rope that was making him scream, right? So like find another way to restrain him or something or, or keep a more watchful eye on him. I just mean that like, the, like there's something going on with like specifically Frodo is obviously very, to a fault, very merciful. And then, yeah. and then, yeah, letting, letting Grima Wormton go doesn't make a ton of sense in like a military standpoint. Definitely not. But yeah. I don't know, in terms of this story, how it plays out, it seems like it was the right thing for Aragorn to do and the right thing for Theoden to go do. Yeah. So we get now to the to the funeral scene, which, considering how little they show of this relationship, uh, I think is still really moving. And the funeral mounds look really, I don't know, just striking with those flowers growing on them. And 
And I'm pretty sure that stuff's all in the theatrical cut as well, even though they didn't do as much to set up the, the death of his son. Um, I, I thought that stuff was all good. The singing in this movie is really subtle. And, and I didn't realize that Eowyn singing that song was... You know, she had to learn an entire language to sing that song. She, well, not an entire language. She had to learn to sing in that language those lyrics. And and I think they said something about it being Old English or some sort of language that would be kind of Nordic in nature or like uh, okay. Anglo-Saxon. That Their whole culture is, I guess, based around like Vikings that instead of having boats, have horses. That's kind of the whole vibe that they were going for with Rohan. And, and again, we notice multiple times in the score there are... There are people singing in Elvish. Like they get like operatic singers, classical singers to come in. And there's one that really sticks out to me is a young boy who, as they're like coming down the at the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep, they're coming down. And the, the, the person who's singing, it's so high pitched. And it's so it's amazing. It's it's like I, and I never really thought about the fact that like the singing in this movie is just of another level as well. It's, hmm. it's like the absolute world-class singers that you could find are just wow. delivering like amazing performances as as score. It's really amazing. So, yeah, to get back to the summary, Aragorn builds a friendship with Theoden's niece, Eowyn, who quickly becomes infatuated with him. When the Exodus comes under attack by war-riding orcs, Aragorn falls off a cliff into a river and is presumed dead. However, he is found by his horse, Brago, and taken to Helm's Deep. The Urukai army arrives at Helm's Deep that night, finding a makeshift army of civilians and elves from Lothalorien waiting for them as a night-long battle follows. Using gunpowder-like explosives on a sewer drain that Wormtongue told Saruman about, the Urukai breached the outer wall and forced the remaining defenders to retreat to the inner castle. Okay, you just covered a lot of a lot of stuff there. Um, I want to back up a little bit and talk about. Let's let's think about Aragorn and his his uh, love triangle he's in here with with Arwen and and Eowyn. They keep cutting between him having these dreams of Arwen, right? And and she's like kissing him. She wakes him up literally when he falls in the river and wakes up later. He like wakes up to her to like kissing her in his dreams. Um, so he's clearly still taken with her. But then we do get a lot of this setup of um, Eowyn being being into him. And there's a lot of bad faith bullshit um, criticisms out there these days for, you know, quote unquote, Mary Sue's. Um, now, this is a term that's been around a long time, but it's starting to get sort of weaponized against any woman with agency in a film at this point. Um, and I, I, the the definition of it is essentially like a male or, a, you know, female uh, who, uh, author, usually insert creator insert into the thing that is being made. And the, the male version is called a Gary Stew. And it's supposed to be these characters who like are really good at everything. Everybody loves them. Um, they're, they're heroic, they never fail, and people tend to find them boring, or that's the claim. Um, but I would argue that throughout all of pop culture, we see these kinds of characters all the time, often men, and you don't see people up in arms about it, because people like them, they're empowering, they're, they're exciting characters. We talked about this some, I think, in our Ready Player One coverage, because that's a clear example of one. Um, and for Lord of the Rings, I think you could say that Aragorn fits that description because he's good at everything he's wise he's gentle he's an amazing fighter when he needs to be and he has the love of two different women he's 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 kind of like a fantasy like a a male fantasy character like everybody wants to be aragorn yeah i so ton of stuff to talk about here the i hate i hate so i hate the mary sue stuff i hate the gary sue stuff i think that if you if you have a character who's in situations that they always get out of 
you know, that's the point of a narrative is to put a character in situations that they can't get out of and then get them out of it. Mm-hmm. If they constantly get out of it, you know, it's like it, it's the the fact that, yeah, like you said, it's being weaponized against female characters specifically. Somebody like Rey from The Force Awakens and, yep. and The Last Jedi. It's it's absolute garbage. It's so stupid. It's the same thing as Aragorn. You see people are even calling Arya, Arya that? In the most recent, yeah, yeah. who gives a I mean, it's, she's it's, absolutely not. She's ridiculous. the most trained character in that entire show. She's so yeah. trained. She's the yeah. most, she's probably the most deadly in the entire show. The fact that, yeah. that anybody's calling her as a Mary Sue is just I don't even, absolutely I don't stupid. even know if the people who are saying that genuinely believe it. I mean, I, some of them probably do because there are a lot of idiots out there, but I think some people are they're just saying it because it's like, oh, that'll piss them off. And, and that's the thing about it now. Like, that's why I, when I said that, like a lot of it's bad faith because I, I, I do think a lot of this is just bullshit political stuff. Um, not even like a good faith criticism. To get back to Aragorn being it, like you said, it's like it's it, isn't that kind of what you want in certain characters? There yeah. are there are stories that you want things from, and they're like there's stories you want certain things from, and a story like this that's like this classical hero's tale or fantasy story. You're gonna have characters who are just able to survive to the end, and and like you can like live vicariously through them. Somebody like Harry Potter is a great example of another. Harry Potter is a character that like constantly gets out of everything. He's always yeah. gonna win, and people Classic love Harry example. Potter. Luke Skywalker. Yeah, it's it, there. There's so many characters that completely fit the mold, and uh, you know, just the fact that they're dudes means that a lot of people tend to not criticize them that way. But as soon as it's right. a woman, they everybody lumps this criticism on them, and it's bullshit. But um, I just wanted to call it that. So it's funny because it's like it is something to be aware of when you're writing to think about with your characters and make sure that you introduce flaws and make sure that you don't do it too much. But it's also like it's a fine line because if you're writing the kind of story where a Mary Sue type character is the right character for the story, you know, like that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's a reason that people love the name of the wind and they love Harry Potter and that they love uh, Ray from Star Wars. Like the these characters or uh, Hunger Games, you know, like it, there, there's characters that Katniss Everdeen, um, there's people love these characters and they love to root for them and they can see themselves in them. And that's not always bad. Anyway, that's I, my, I guess my, my soapbox moment about that, which I feel like we have to do like every 20 episodes or so. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to talk about this, this love story triangle here as well, because yeah, a uh, lot of stuff built into this in terms of production uh, that I learned from the appendices. So did you know that Arwen was originally planned to be in the Battle of Helm's Deep. She was going to be in the battle alongside Arwen, Aragorn. Yeah. So the reason for this was early drafts of this story were sold to studios with Arwen being there in order to sell the love the love story between them because they felt that having a separated love story where they're across the entire continent from each other wouldn't play well for that love story. Like people are just going to forget about it and it won't be relevant. And this idea of like a psychic relationship wasn't really f- flying with the studio. Um, ultimately some of the, I, I, you know, these are early days, 1999, like 2000, it leaks on the internet, on the net, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, that, that Arwen's going to be in the battle of Helm's deep. And there's a lot of passionate fans that didn't want that to happen. Uh, oh, now that's wow. not to mention the fact that the, the filmmakers really did, weren't hundred percent sold on having Arwen in this battle anyway, but ultimately they made a decision to not have her in it. And, Liv Tyler talks about it in the appendices and she talks about how Arwen is a powerful character, but you can have powerful characters and, and, you know, she's also a female character. You can have powerful female characters that don't have to show it by being in combat. Um, And I think that you're able to see that with Arwen. Clearly she is, she is a powerful character. She's very important within the story. Um, And, you know, I can also see the perspective of the filmmakers wanting to give Arwen more to do, you know, give her, like have her in the movies more because she's not really in this one very much. 
But I do think that the change of having that psychic relationship in this film works for me because it does carry that that thread line. And what I also love is is that they're using some flashbacks from when they were together in Rivendell. Um, and, yeah. and the moment when, when Aragorn is leaving and she like catches him before he leaves. Um, I think that those are all solid additions in order to like sell that, that romance. Uh, I, I will say there's, I had one criticism of those and I, I remember it when I originally saw the film and even this time it, it was, it was noticeable to me is that sometimes I wasn't clear if they were having, if he was having a dream, if he was having a psychic connection or if he was having a memory. Mm-hmm. And I think we get all three of those things. We do. Yeah. It's not clear which which is which sometimes, and so all of those themes feel kind of confusing to me. And so I I can I can get the pro- the issues that people might have seen with that. It works okay, but like I I, I I get a bit confused. My question, I guess I would say then is, I, does it really make a difference if we know which is which? You know what I mean? Like whether it was a yeah. flashback, I feel like it still conveys the same the same feelings that the characters have for each other. It does to me because I want to know if we're seeing a past version of Aragorn professing his love and and trying to convince her to stay and all this stuff if this was a previous conversation they had at some point in the past and that now he's had some time and that his feelings may have changed or he and he's remembering versus actively this is happening right now and this is our current state of relationship between these two characters and i do think there's enough of a distinction between those two things to where i want to know which of those is which you know what i mean Right. And I guess the the other reason just to, you know, jump on your side as well is is would be because there is some sort of bond forming between him and Eowyn. You would want to know, like, where he stands with 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 Arwen at that point. Exactly. But I but I would also say that, like, I was never sold on Aragorn and 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 Eowyn anyway. Like, I felt like, the you know, it was like I think it was there to add the drama of is Arwen going to leave Middle Earth or not? Is she going to leave with her dad? Or is she going to stay for Aragorn? I, I would contend there's also a little bit of like the reader or the viewer can put themselves in Aragorn's shoes a little bit and feel like how cool would it be to have these two beautiful women both like me? I, I really yeah. think that is part of it. I think, you know, whether or not you, how you feel about that, I think that, that that is one of the appeals of having that happen to a character. Now, you can say that like that, you know, romance has been doing this forever with tr- love triangles, right? Often, you know, it is a woman at the center of that or, or a young girl. It's with with two, you know, teenage dudes who both like her. Maybe one of them's a, a you know, an immortal vampire, <laughs> that kind of thing. Like it, it often happens and it can be empowering and people like reading it. And it's interesting to see that sort of love triangle plot line in our in our Tolkien fantasy, which you wouldn't have thought is you were going to see it in. But I think those two things share some really similar DNA and, and are, are essentially the same plot line. So, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting to note that that. Arwen was going to be in the Battle of Helm's Deep, fighting right alongside Aragorn, which would have been very different. It would have been different. It, 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 I feel like it would have also kind of shat on Eowyn and her already frustrating idea that she has to go down into the caves. And like, I know that she has to, like, if they let her fight in the Two Towers battle, like socially, I'm fine with that. And she's clearly a good fighter. So if they're arming eight-year-old children, why not arm her? Um, but she also has to have the moment against the witch king the the you know i am no man moment and if she fights here that does undercut narratively that moment right so um 
I can see why they maybe wanted to preserve that. But then you also like if you it, it would be kind of further complicate things if she wants to fight and she can't. But then she looks out and Arwen's out there fighting. Right. Like, what the hell? <laughs> why can she fight? And I can't. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, 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 so, uh, yeah, as much as I. I don't know. Like, I, I guess I still like the way that we ended up getting it. But I don't know. Maybe there could have been a way to make it work. But it just it seems yeah, like it would have it would have complicated things to have it play out that way. Definitely. I mean, it's unfortunate, but ultimately, I, I'm happy. You know, if she didn't have a moment in, in Return of the King, if she didn't have, like, the, the, she's in the battle, and yeah, she's fighting the the, the Night King, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> she's fighting the head, the head, what, what would you call, what's the, head, what's the leader of the... Isn't he the Witch King? I forget his name. Witch King, yeah, that's what it is. When she's fighting him, I mean, that's obviously a huge moment they were building to. Um, yeah. Just speaking of, of kind of the female perspective on these, on this entire story, um, I did want to mention how much of the appendices were talked about by uh, Philippa Boyens, who wrote the screenplay with Fran Walsh and and Peter Jackson. Uh, I she was my favorite part of the appendices because she's constantly breaking down. She broke down the Faramir stuff. She broke down the Shelob stuff. She broke down the Helm's Deep stuff. The Arwen stuff. It's amazing to really understand like where they were coming from and why they were writing certain characters. And it's also amazing because the song that uh Eowyn sings was basically poetry that Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens wrote and then they turned it into another language and then like a linguist turned it into whatever language they sang it in uh in order to sing and I just think that's amazing that they're just putting like yeah. their fingerprints on Tolkien's work there too and and staying true to like what his vision was as much as possible just no just noting that that like the female influence on this film uh was great there's there's a huge amount of it two two screenwriters and a lot of these women characters get more to do, and that's great. And uh, we see, I think Eowyn is a character that benefits from this. I, we we know more about her in the films, especially the extended cut, although how much of that was cut for the theatrical release, I guess, is, you know, you can point to that and say, you know, how much do they really care? Um, but the frustration of the character being relegated to the caves, I think, directly lends itself to what happens in the next film. And uh, her relationship with her father and her and um, Aemir, like, all of that is really interesting and and and, and added scenes that, that I think add a lot of depth to that. Um, and I think that was more than we got in the books. I just want to say, cause I, I remember I was thinking we were going to get a lot more AON in the books, but we don't <laughs> not really. Yeah. Before we get into the battle of Helm's deep, uh, during the attack of the wargs, I wanted to call out, remember in the intro, I said that there was some stuff that I looked at and went, Oh, this is kind of worrisome for what there was to come. There's one moment in that battle that I think is super indicative of the bad places that I, in my opinion, they took Legolas as a character. And mm-hmm. that's his he like flips physics onto the defying horse. reverse backwards flip in front of a charging horse onto the saddle. As soon as he did that, I was like, what the fuck are they doing with this character? And it, you, you get over it and it's fine pretty quickly. But knowing where this character goes... And this this moment to me leads directly to you can draw a line between this moment and Legolas running up a series of falling stones in in Hobbit. Uh, I the mean, five, Battle of Five this, Armies. Because they they establish here that he can defy physics, and I it frustrates me. There's so much more with Battle of Five Armies that I hate more than than Legolas's. Defi- like, look, it's a ridiculous moment. It's clearly like 
way over the top, way ridiculous. Um, but wanting to show that the elves are more, you know, maybe they are physics defying. Maybe they do have some sort of abilities where they're able to like to move I don't think like they this. are in the books, though. I think that's just an added thing for the for the show, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't see. Them well, I mean, like the they can walk on the snow, right? That's true. So it's they like, can walk on top of like, snow. There's like there's little things here and there. I think they're just trying to depict like how the elves are different and like some of their abilities may be there. Um, look, it's it's ridiculous. And so is surfing down a flight of stairs on a shield. Yeah. But like it, it's uh, I was that, more okay this, with that because it was at least cool. I don't know. Right. What about what about when he's like surfing down a all offense trunk in the next movie? Yeah. Like, we'll, we'll get to no, that too. That's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot and and we talked about it. We think like I think that a lot of these like badass moments you could just give to Gimli. Like there's a moment where Gimli is perfectly set up to basically fight a ton of orcs in the battle of Helm's deep. And instead, like I think Aragorn and some people run in and save him. They should have just had, like, they should have just had Gimli go off right there and just kill like 10 or 15 orcs by himself. And yeah. then that like makes up for some of this Legolas stuff that he's clearly like weighing in the elf direction. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. I mean, I don't know. That's a whole, that's a whole thing to track throughout this series, I guess. So we also get a lot of this stuff with Faramir and Frodo happening before this and uh, the initial sort of capture of Frodo and the introduction of Faramir as a character. And uh, we then get a flashback to Boromir and Faramir. Now, I don't know if this got cut from the theatrical release. It might have. Yeah, I think it did. But I thought this flashback was really cool. And we see Boromir giving this really rousing speech and he's he's happy and him and his brother have this great relationship. And then we also get the introduction of the king from Return of the, um, you know, not the king, the steward, I guess, um, of of Gondor and the father who's a piece of shit and like terrible to his son. And, you know, I guess that does like maybe get into some stuff that is definitely going to be in Return of the King. like maybe that's why they cut it. But it also gives us a ton of great backstory for Faramir as a character and why he tries to take the ring in an attempt to like please his father that, that he can't please. And um, I think that all makes a lot more sense with these additional scenes. And when you cut them all, it looks more like Faramir is just being sort of a greedy, weak hearted man, um, right. which is remember when we talked about in the books, like I, my feeling from a Faramir in the movie was way different than what we got in the book. And I think this is why. In the book, mm-hmm. he's really good and really honorable and and seems to genuinely uh, be able to resist the ring in a way that we don't necessarily see at a Faramir initially in the in the movie, although he does come around. Yeah, ton of stuff to talk about here, too. It's, it feels like every time we stop, we got a shitload of stuff to talk about. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, Faramir uh, being set up as a character. The filmmakers, specifically uh, Philippa Boyens, uh, spoke about Faramir as a character and how setting him up as he was in the book and, and introducing him in that way would break all of the tension that they've built around the ring because because their her feeling on it and their feeling on it was no one can resist the ring. Everyone's tempted by the ring. You see what it does to Frodo. You've seen what it does to Gollum. And for somebody to walk up and basically say like, I wouldn't pick it up even if it was on the side of the road is basically like, then, then there's going to be other characters that can do that basically. So they're saying yeah. like, the idea that he is that pure, he is. He ultimately does turn down the ring and doesn't take it. But the idea that he's that pure and that he's that un, undaunted by the ring is kind of breaking some of the tension that they were building. Um, it undercuts the idea of the power of the ring. I, I can see that actually. I, I agree with that. Um, also, the the I love the setup of Boromir's character here as well because we get to yeah. see the, we get to see the steward tell his. We see Boromir's father tell him to go get the ring. 
specifically yeah. so that Gondor will be powerful. And and it's you know it's the influence of his father, and wanting to save his people. That now with that added backstory, that we can see why he would try to take the ring. It adds a nice tragedy tragedy to that character. Absolutely. And how do we like how how much worse do we feel about Boromir dying now for for these just causes? It's just it's just he's just trying to do what was right. And yeah, the setup for Faramir's character, um, it's all it's all so good. And and we can really see Faramir. Ultimately, I think we land with Faramir, knowing all this backstory. We land with Faramir similar to how he is in the book, but we just he had an actual arc in this, and that's something they spoke about in the appendices. Is he had an actual arc of wanting the ring, and then coming to an understanding through all the Osgiliath stuff with Frodo and Sam and realizing that this, the ring needs to be destroyed and, you know, turning down the ring. So ultimately he had like his own little arc there. Yeah. And ultimately I think it does work. Um, it just, I just wanted to note the, how different it was from the book, right? Like, cause, cause that's what we do. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's the point of reading it, right? Yeah. That was Big a massive change. difference for sure. Yeah. So the, the battle before of Helm's get, Deep. Before we get to Helm's Deep, I'm going to keep stopping you because I know that as right. soon as we get there, I'm going to like completely miss out on these scenes that I want to talk about. Okay. Um, I want to talk about, um, the Entmoot and uh, Treebeard and some of the stuff with like the trees gobbling up the, our hobbits and in, in, in the roots and drinking of the Entwash. Some of these are definitely added scenes. Um, some of you know some of them work really well. I like the nod to the Entwash and the way it makes makes you taller. Um, mm-hmm. I thought the 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 roots gra- gra- grabbing the hobbits was genuinely uh, claustrophobia inducing to me because um, I am a claustrophobic person and it made me feel very like because I hate being the idea of being like constrained like that really like it makes me feel weird oh, so yeah. I yeah I hate those scenes were, were kind of tough honestly so did you I didn't realize this until they spoke about it in the appendices but that is old man willow from the first book that's the oh, tree that, that has the roots that like holds on to them and grabs on to Yeah, you're um, right. You're right. It is. Oh man. And yeah, you know what's so, amazing? What's amazing is they actually gave some of Tom Bombadil's lines from the fellowship book to Treebeard as he when he walks up and says, "Eat dirt, dig deep, drink water." He, that's a bo- Tom Bombadil line that they gave to Treebeard. Oh, yeah, go to sleep. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't catch that, but I should have cuz that that totally makes sense. Discounting that particular scene the rest of the stuff in Fangorn is them sort of riding on Treebeard, going to the Entmoot. It's all kind of nighttime usually. Um, and I'm going to be a little bit critical of the movie here. I don't like the way these scenes look. I find them visually confusing. They, It's all it's all like the same hue that they've put over everything. It's this bluish green. And then we're looking at a bunch of trees that are themselves sort of green and brown and gray. And then we get the mix of like tree beard and how he looks with all the trees surrounding him and the other, there's actually a couple times where there's some other ints in the background having like reactions. I found all of these scenes actually really difficult to sort of parse visually and see what's actually going on. And they look muddy to me. They look, they look like they're all, it's like a, it looks like like you're looking at almost like a magic eye painting of a bunch of like the same colors. Um, mm-hmm. And you're trying to figure out what's actually happening. Um, you can follow it okay, and I'm I'm exaggerating it to make my point. But um, in general, uh, I I feel like some other lighting source. I don't know what it would have been, um, maybe like a lantern or something that they could have could have gotten a hold of or what. But like there needed to be some other source of light because it's all too monotone to me, and I and I often struggled to see what was actually happening. Yeah, I I mean that's a valid point. I understand where you're coming from. Um, you know, I personally haven't really had that issue as far as like, uh, like, I, I see what you mean, though. a lot of the same color and that, that blue moonlight look didn't really 
do a great job of lighting everything but i guess another like reason for it is that it's early not that early but it's early days for cg and you know the darker it is the easier it is the more believable things look um but did you realize that treebeard you know sometimes he's not but a lot of the times treebeard is like a it's actually like a built animatronic tree that mary and pippin are actually sitting in his hands it's actually like a huge animatronic that like Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd are sitting in in like this giant puppet basically. And apparently <laughs> there was like bike seats in there where they were just sitting on bike seats. And like there, there, there was like a, you know, like eight people manipulating this giant animatronic. And I think that maybe that that blended with the other tree, the other ends that were clearly only CG. Maybe that looked a little wonky. Yeah, and it's like I wanted to be able to see it better because it was I could tell that there was something really well crafted on the screen, and I just wanted to be able to tell. But you're right; like they probably did it in a way to like hide some stuff and make it look more realistic. Um, I don't know, but just ultimately looking back, like some of those scenes to me haven't aged as well as far as like crispness and the the clarity that I that I've come to expect. Um, right. Uh, so right before the battle, there's a couple other things I want to talk to about. There's a scene where uh, Theoden is getting his armor on. And I was just really, I wanted to get your thoughts about why they chose to light it this way. He's standing in a way that like the sun, I think is spilling, it's supposed to be spilling in through the window behind him or the door behind him. And he's like backlit by these like huge beams of light. And he's standing there and he's having this moment. And it's actually really powerful where he's talking about like, how has it come to this? And, 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 you know, it's very ominous. And we see him getting his armor put on by his, his like, um, I think it's like a commander in his army. I'm not sure. Um, and he's talking about how they're all loyal to him and they'll follow him anywhere and all this stuff. And uh, at we at the same time, we're getting a montage of like little children and old men getting like, you know, swords and armor that, that don't fit them or that they look like they're like terrified as they're getting handed big weapons. And I thought that stuff was all really affecting and um, really good stuff. And then the lighting behind they didn't, I thought was a really interesting choice. Like, what are they trying to say with that lighting? I mean, that's a good question. You could say that he was trying to, they were trying to evoke some sort of like holy fate moment or something. Like there's some sort of experience going on here where this is the last stand of men and we don't know if they'll survive and the sacrifice that's going to need to be made by all these people. Um, there is, I, I agree. I think the, yeah, the, I think holy and sort of um, godly is, is where my mind goes. And, um, you know, specifically lighting him that way, I think is, is sort of trying to add that level of like epic, you know, God of old, not God of old, Kings of old feeling for Theoden. And, um, we get some of these great lines in the books, but I just, I think they actually did a really good job of like heightening how epic and how awesome Theoden is, even though he is occasionally at odds with our characters. Cause I mm -hmm. think Aragorn wants them to flee is what I what I'm guessing is what they actually want because they're advising against him going to Helm's Deep. I think he, they want him to like flee with all the people to like Gondor or something. I think he um, wanted to ride out. Well, he definitely wanted to send out for aid, but he specifically said he wanted them to ride out and fight the forces out there and not to run because they, I think that they that his they, I think that moving the people he knew was going to be slow, and that the time that it would take they could be overrun by you know, war riders or something yeah. like that. Well, that's a terrible idea because they would have definitely lost if they'd met. A hundred percent. No, but I don't think they field. knew the size of the, they, they didn't know the size of the forces at that point. Like Aragorn, you know what I mean? It took him falling off and then eventually seeing the forces to let them know it's like 10,000 men or whatever. 10,000 orcs. Yeah. Uh, oh, so speaking of men, uh, we did also get some added scenes of these like uh, other types, other like people. Right. 
Although it's interesting because we don't—I don't think we ever see them in any of the battles. All we ever see is orcs. But there we are see, supposed no. to be these other men who have who have joined forces with with uh, Saruman. I think that we were supposed to assume because we saw the men directly before this battle, but where they go into like the small town, the orcs are like going in and burning. I think we're supposed yeah. to assume there are men fighting there as well. But yeah, that scene where they, the the man like cuts his hand and like gives the blood to Sar- Saruman and like pledges loyalty. That I forgot about and I didn't remember. There is a lot more men on Saruman's side. No, yeah, but but yeah. It, there's a lot more men on Saruman's side than than we uh, were remembering when we were talking about it in the books. Well, that's in the books too, right? Like they, they that that does happen in the books. I, I, yeah, I think I made the comment about how like I didn't think that there was many men on Saruman's side. Oh, movie. I see. Yeah, there yeah. is. They, they, they in the but extended version, at least, they do give a nod to that. Um, and at and the Black Gate as well. At the Black Gate, there's there's some soldiers yeah. like marching in that like almost catch. And I remember that in. moment felt really weird because we didn't get any. That was the first time in the theatrical release that where we actually see humans on Mordor's side. And I remember it being kind of like, oh, whoa, these are these are just people. Right. Um, and Faramir is actually the one who delivers the line about like, I wonder if he had it, was it truly evil at heart or if he is, you know what I mean? And that right. was all Frodo's line in the book. Um, but they give it to Faramir instead. And I wonder if that's an attempt to sort of like repair the character of Faramir that they know they're about to damage some in the sense Maybe, that they're going to yeah. make him seem dis- more dishonorable. Taking that observation that Frodo makes, you know, and giving yeah. it to him. Anyway, all right, I'm going to allow you to get to Helm's Deep now. I think I've stopped interrupting you. <laughs> let's do it. Let's talk about Helm's Deep. All right, Deep. let's jump into Helm's Deep. So, I mean, just this first statement that I want to say about this is clearly this is the, we talked about a high watermark earlier. This is a high watermark for battles, period, and as told by the fact that, that uh, Miguel Sopochnik was studying this battle in order to prepare for his battle. Um, it's amazing. It's it's absolutely one of the most memorable battle sequences in especially this this form, you know, like a more medieval form uh, that's on film. And it's it's amazing. And this is at one point I did mention that I would talk about this at one point. Two Towers was my favorite movie. And it was just because I was just because of this battle is absolutely mm-hmm. through and through one of the most memorable things I've, I had seen on in film up to that point and still is um, in the in the appendices. Peter Jackson talks about how Helm's Deep draws inspiration from a 60s war film called Zulu. Um, I haven't personally seen it, but after hearing him talk about it and the fact that that influenced this battle, I'm going to go ahead and watch that soon. I think that's actually a, like a pretty well-known film. I think I've heard it talked about a lot, um, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen it either. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just want to echo what you said. I think it is one of the most striking battles ever put on on film. Um, and like I said earlier, and you mentioning Miguel Sabachnik, uh, we did just watch uh, you know a very big battle in Game of Thrones that was had a lot of comparisons. Without spoiling it, Okay, so first off, the the fact that it's a siege in both is, uh, <laughs> I think the 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 idea of a siege is put on screen much better in the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, it's still overwhelming forces. It's still a, a desperate fight, but uh, the the setup and the and the the tactics p- portrayed are just way smarter. We get things that I desperately wanted in Game of Thrones that we don't get. We get uh, there's <laughs> there's archers in the courtyard firing over top of the walls like that is something they used to do in real life and is and it's incredible to actually see it on the mo- in on the screen it's so smart but regardless of all of that where i i feel like i definitely got to give it to helm's deep i think the battle in game of thrones is in my opinion the better looking battle hmm. i think the lighting in helm's deep has not aged well every scene i 
could tell there was a giant spotlight just off camera illuminating everybody. And it becomes kind of silly at a point where it starts to feel very unnatural to me. Like, this is not natural lighting in any way. It's way too bright. Um, and I think the brightness didn't do any didn't do any justice to the sets because honestly you can kind of see the fakeness of the rock sometimes because it's so well lit. Whereas I think in like a more genuinely dark scene, it might have looked better because you might have been able to hide some of that. Now mm-hmm. that, a lot of people are probably going to be upset when I say that because one of the biggest I w- criticisms. I want to jump in real quick and say one thing. You're talking about lighting is the thing. So like yes. I think you should say that that you prefer the lighting in in the battle the battle in Game of Thrones because. In terms of, in terms of visuals, I, I don't like like. Are you are you sure that you want to make the statement that like you visually enjoy the, <laughs> that battle more because it's like, the, the, like although lighting maybe may, you know maybe it's clear that like the light is is just off screen and maybe the rain is also affecting that the the fact that like all of Helm's Deep takes place while it's raining. There's some stuff in Game of Thrones that that is like. Look, it looks great, and it's and it's modern technology, and they have more things that they can use. They have more tools at their disposal, but you're also talking about um, like a battle that like each shot was was decided before like two years before they even got there um so i don't know i i don't know um i definitely agree with the idea that like maybe the lighting was more dynamic but i don't know that i would say that it's a better looking battle necessarily and i did like yeah. it there i mean look there are great so, moments yeah, i in have both. to differentiate between what actually plays out in the battle and and just like aesthetically how it looks like talking right. about cinematography talking about lighting and and how things were shot and right. yes, in my opinion, and now this is a controversial opinion, I know it, because a lot of people were very upset with, you know, the muddiness, quote unquote, of what they saw in Game of Thrones. Um, I I think that the Game of Thrones battle was shot and filmed in such a way to to look amazing on super high end televisions with great bit rates and 4K, you know, and, and they shot it in a way that they're like, we want our show to look amazing if you were to put it on an IMAX screen or something, right? Like, we want it to mm-hmm. look incredible on the absolute highest quality of production. And there's an argument to be made against, uh, or for and against that, I guess. Like, because, like, yes, a bunch of people who are watching Game of Thrones aren't watching it in that way. But I have a very good TV. I have an OLED. And watching this battle on my screen, I, it was it was just striking how much... Um, the screen was just like my, it, it, the image wasn't doing anything to utilize how good my screen was. And I know it's because it's older when, when we're talking about just aesthetics and like how it looked and like, maybe a lot of that's just modern tech. Like you said, um, I just found that like, it just didn't look as good as, as the game. of Thrones. I can, so I would say that like, in terms of like Christmas, I understand what you're saying and I understand where you're coming from, but like to, to your point, I prefer the battle of the bastards to, to the battle we just got. Okay, well that that's a different argument. I'm just comparing these two. I was just comparing these two because, like I said, we watched them a week apart. Yes, I agree. I I, also, I think I think Battle of the Bastards is the that's the high watermark for all Game of Thrones battles in my opinion. Right. I just think that this one this one was a lot like in terms of like there was just so much going on in certain in certain scenes where like. I had no frame of reference of knowing anything that was like, I was like, people were being surrounded by something (laughs) by enemies. (laughs) And, uh, and I didn't know like what was going on and it was just chaos and it wasn't, it wasn't as coherent as I would have liked. Um, so, but in terms of like, if you want to take screenshots of the battle, I understand what you're saying. If you want to take screenshots and put it up on a screen and look at like how some of the stuff looked, I agree. But there are also moments in, in Helm's Deep that I would also put up against some of the shots in, in, uh, in that battle but yeah i mean that's that's you know we don't we don't have to keep going down this this rabbit hole it's just one of those things yeah 
it's fine. And, and I know that like, I think my, my, my opinion is in the minority and is probably controversial, but I just wanted to put it out there because that is something that I, that I had that observation while watching it, genuinely. Yeah. So, all right, let's move into the battle proper. So the, it starts with a misfired arrow, which I've always loved that. Oh, yeah, from like an old, older guy. <laughs> yeah, and, and the couple of things that were in the appendices that made me appreciate the battle more was the, the score um, was, was going between basically every major character's score. Like we'd go into like the elven Legolas scene with all the archers and everything, and then we'd go into like Aragorn's score and the, the Urukai score as they walked up. And it was basically like the score was ebbing and flowing with like whatever was going on in the battle, which I just thought was just an amazing little piece that you might not even notice sometimes. Um, and yeah, just the siege overall is it's amazing, man. The, the way that they, they storm the walls with the ladders, it's always been such a smart tactic because like there's no other way to, to and, and you know, the people on the wall are smart for pushing the ladders down because that's the well, only yeah, and that's all that's it. all real stuff from sieges, right? Like the, the idea right. of these ladders and, and the siege towers and the stuff they use. It's all so cool. And I'm so glad that we see all of this put on screen in a way that is like the best way I've seen it. This is an incredible battle. The uh, the orcs riding the ladders up is such a cool visual. Like that looks amazing. Yeah, um, I always remember that. Um, it's it's truly striking. So the the other thing I wanted to talk about was the the fact that it's raining the entire time because oh, yeah. just as in terms of logistics getting enough water there to to be constantly pumping that water and and the way that like the, the all those people are wearing prosthetics and so like the water is seeping in they must have been so miserable and the way that it looks on screen with the the rain and and the way that the orcs are lit it all just looks so great i mean yeah i agree there is a funny moment and i wanted to get you to weigh on this just because you probably know more about it than i do um we get the uh wilhelm scream i was about to bring that up and and i wanted to know like just what your thoughts are on this like and why it's why is it in so many movies like at this point like what's the what's the point of it and and it's funny to see it here to hear it i love so for me this is like the ultimate not ultimate but this is one of the biggest like cinematic references you can make um I pulled up some stuff here that I wanted to read just about the Wilhelm scream. It's a it's a stock sound effect uh, that has been used in at least 416 films and TV series uh, beginning in 1951 with the film Distant Drums. The scream is often used when someone is shot, falls from a great height or is thrown or is thrown from an explosion. The sound is named after Private Wilhelm, a character in the ch- the charge at Feather River, a 1953 Western in which the character gets shot in the thigh with an arrow. <laughs> Uh, the effect gained new popularity. It's often used as an in-joke after it was used in the Star Wars series, Star Wars series, the Indiana Jones series, Disney cartoons, and many other blockbuster films, as well as many television programs, cartoons, and video games. Mm-hmm. So I love it. I think it's still, yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, even if you don't know about all that backstory, you hear it all the time and you're just like, it It, it still works. It's a little, sometimes maybe a little jarring. Um yeah. But I love it. Like I'm putting the Wilhelm scream in something eventually. Maybe you could put it in this episode if you can find it. Put it like right now. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I just when that when that happened, I wanted to mention that because it is kind of one of those little cinematic gems that that has been around forever, and it's just it's a fun little in th- in joke thing like the yeah. So th- that's what that was my question. Has it become like a thing where everybody's in on the 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 joke of it? And it sounds like it has. Like it's an in reference. So I get yeah. that, and in that sense, like I guess I do like it. Um, it, it's just funny that it's like it's it's in everything at this point. Yeah. Did you catch Peter Jackson's cameo? 
Oh no, I didn't. I wasn't looking for it, but you're, I know that he's he's like in one. He's one of the soldiers, right? Yeah. So the, like up on those the walls. little, yeah, on the walls, one of the uh, one of those little hatches opens up, and he like pokes his head out and he throws a spear and kills an orc, and then the hatch like shuts back down. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. And he does like a crazy scream, and I it, I think he I'm pretty sure he cameos in all all of the Hobbit and and uh, Lord of the Rings films. So I do like how there, it was funny. So like Theoden has a couple of moments in this battle that are that are interesting. One of them is he's he's like, is that all you can muster? And then, of course, like they blow that up. And it's it's like, of course, he's like tempting fate. And you're just like, why would you say that? Why um, would you ever say that? I'll never I'll never get over the fact that people say that in movies. Yeah. <laughs> it seems kind of unrealistic. And then I do like uh, there's a moment where he actually goes up and he's like defending the door and he's stabbing orcs and then he takes a spear to like the shoulder and like they pull him back. I just thought it was cool. He's like up there getting his hands dirty in that moment, mm-hmm. not just completely standing back. And then, um, of course, uh, there's the there's the gambit of Aragorn and Gimli getting where they toss Gimli. It's like, oh, you're going to toss me. Don't tell the elf. And then he jumps over and they both just stand there and fight for like a good five minutes against an endless number of orcs. Um to hold back so that they can they can the, there were yeah. orcs behind them and in front of them and they were having oh, yeah. to def- like fight off both it's like that's a really bad tactical move it's a bit ridiculous so you know if, as much as we want to give the the battle of helms deep credit for like the realistic siege craft and in that like there are some really silly things that happen that, that don't make a lot of sense to talk about that what about the moment where the like one of the first urukai who come over the wall gimli like hits him in the in the nuts and like yeah. the it's like clearly like you know, there's some fun being had here. It's not. It doesn't take sure. itself. And I'm, I'm not against. Serious. I'm not against that. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm not against like some fun. I'm. And some of these jokes work. And uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to come down and say that I'm. I'm, I'm against it. But I, I was pointing out more sort of like ridiculous. Like I don't think Gimli and Aragorn is supposed to be funny when no. they're fi- now the thro- the toss me thing is funny. But then when right. they're actually just fighting the orcs, we're supposed to buy that they can they can single handedly hold this bridge against an unlimited number of orcs that are charging them. And right. to me, that's not funny. That's ridiculous. Right. Um, and that's the stuff that I'm not as big a fan of. Like, I know that they're pushing it in this movie a lot, and they do it way more in the following film. Um, but this is this doesn't feel like the same characters that we've been seeing up till now. It's like they've had they've all of a sudden gotten super powered. Yeah. Have you did you play the uh, did you play the game on like PS2 back in the day? The the two hours game. God, that game is so good, man. Great yeah. memories playing that game. Yeah, and it's, and and it's harder to fight orcs in that even that game than it is for them in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> there is a really cool like this is the moment where we draw swords together, which has been memed fun, like really funny online, um, where they hold up the little drawings of swords. Have you ever seen that? Right. One? Um, <laughs> um, but they 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 go they ride out ride out with me and they go out and they um because because Aragorn realizes that like the dawn is coming and he thinks about the thing with with Gandalf. Well, I don't think that he necessarily. I don't think he was thinking about it. At first, at first they were like, right. He was like, yeah, you're right out with yeah. me. And then Gimli's like, the dawn is coming. And then he kind of hears Gandalf's words. Yeah. And then and then come on, Aragorn. He doesn't say anything to <laughs> to Theoden to clue him in. Oh, hey, Aragorn's or, uh, Gandalf's supposed to be coming. This is like the last ride of men, though. Like, this is their moment. Like, even if he like, you know, maybe he, maybe Gandalf doesn't. Yeah. Show and up. I guess he doesn't know for certain. Like, he's hoping Gandalf will show, but maybe he doesn't know for certain he will. Right. I mean, come on. At this point, you should trust Gandalf. So first off, I just wanted to say that the the image of them riding the horses out through the the huge number of orcs is is a little bit silly to me. Like it's clearly not something that could really happen, but it's still epic enough to where like rule of cool, I'm okay with it. Like yeah, 
you know, ultimately. What I fine. love about this is that like it, it the way that you were talking about how they were lighting it and kind of the, the, the nature of this battle, we know that we're witnessing like Middle Earth history. We know that this will be a battle talked about forever. And this ride out moment is that like final riding of men, the last string of hope about to be yeah. snipped. And then and then, you know, at the at the in the 11th hour, down comes Gandalf. I do want to shout out how cool this scene is because this is an added this is an added thing, and specifically the idea of him using the dawn as it's coming over the ridge to blind the pikemen essentially of the orcs so that they're less effective in a, in, a, in like a set um, you know set series of pikes against a, a charging cavalry is a really smart thing to do on two levels. First off, it just like because. A, a series of charging horses at set pikemen, like that's not great. You're not gonna. I mean, you can do it, but it's not gonna go great for either side. Um, but the idea that the blinding like throws them off enough to where it's way more effective, I think, works really well. And then second, this to me is a direct callback to something that happens in the Hobbit book, and they wanted to like put it in the film, and that's Gandalf using the rising sun to uh, petrify the trolls in the Hobbit. That moment is such a cool, like, clever Gandalf thing that I think everyone was remembering, you know, and like, I, it, so it plays off of that. So even though it didn't actually happen in the books, it feels like something he would do, you know? I agree, yeah. I also feel like just the symbolism of, of you know, Gandalf the White riding with the dawn against the ultimate evil is is clearly, there's like a lot baked into that. Just from sure. like a, we talked some, about like theologically, yeah. like yeah, yeah. There's a lot because Gandalf is the is the Jesus figure too, right? Not even necessarily theologically as well. Just just in terms of like good versus evil, like like yeah, and, and like it's it's the moment of light triumphing over dark, and like the, coming with the dawn is is you know it's a new day has started, a new day of of men, the new age of men, and everything. I, I think it just all it works on many levels. And that shot of them cascading down this like mountainside, coming at full speed on their thousands of horses, um, it's really stunning to see visually. I think it's a great shot. It looks amazing. The idea of like this like huge amount of like horse and man coming down at you, it's also like you can see why the the force breaks because the, the the orcs are immense hosts still. And when when the horses crash into them, it's like okay, yeah, that's uh, that would really that would break you. So that's why I think it's also like they don't kill every last orc here, they, but they do break them and then they flee into the, the forest and then we get the nice thing from the book where like the forest um, has all turned on the orcs and like kind of <laughs> gobbles them up and old man willows them all. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. I, I thought, and I don't think that's in the original. I don't think that's in the theatrical version. I think that's probably a, not. So I did, we've talked a lot about the Battle of Helm's Deep and we're starting to run long here. So but so I do yeah. want to definitely talk about Sam and Frodo and kind of the conflict brewing between them because of because of Gollum as well as the ring and the stuff that goes on with Faramir. Uh, specifically, mm-hmm. like as they get to Osgiliath, you know, the whole movie, Sam has been trying to tell Frodo, like, look, the ring is affecting you. You need to like realize this because it's starting to take you and you're not eating and you're not sleeping. Um how did you feel about how how this all worked out? Because I think that this builds to a really satisfying conclusion to the Sam and Frodo storyline here, even though it's not necessarily the Shelob ending that we got in the book. Yeah, uh, I, I like all this. I, I think they've added some nice scenes of Frodo getting affected by the ring. I love them. There's a moment where he's like stroking it and then he looks over and he sees Gollum like clearly 
kind of like stroking his hand as if he used to do with the ring. And I thought that was genuinely like chilling. Like we're like, oh shit, like we can really see what this ring is doing to Frodo. It's literally trying to make him into another golem. And so I think they really play up that empathy and sympathy that 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 Frodo has for Gollum and why he protects him the way he, that he does. And that all works really, really well for me, actually. I really like that stuff. There was a cut scene, even cut from the, the extended edition, that they talked about in the appendices where they had put Elijah Wood in full Gollum makeup. And like as Faramir goes to take the ring, as he's like like looking at the ring, he sees what Frodo would become eventually if you know if the ring uh-huh. wasn't destroyed basically you know it was cut there were some shots of kind of what he looked like very interesting that we could have seen like a, a golem version <laughs> of frodo yeah i, I mean i, I kind of get why they cut it though i think that's a little maybe too on the nose like let let, let you're, you're you don't need to see that yeah, yeah there's a funny moment and and i'm nitpicking i know but and it's a funny joke moment but uh <laughs> gimli is sitting on a, on an orc and uh, they're doing the whole count thing, right? Which we talked about how I thought that was a movie edition, but no, it's in the books. And Legolas comes up and he shoots the arrow into the orc that he's sitting on. And he says he was twitching and he says, he was twitching because he has my axe embedded in his nervous system. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Does Gimli know what a nervous system is and how? No. <laughs> like they, they don't understand how brains work in medieval Middle Earth, do they? Do they know understand about nervous systems and such? I don't think so. Um, so anyway, that like it breaks the rules of the world, but it's funny enough to where it's like, okay, I'm just nitpicking, but um, it does. There's a couple times where like you know, this is a thing in fantasy where you'll you'll get characters saying things, and it's like, oop, you didn't think about the fact that like that isn't a, shouldn't be a thing in this world. <laughs> yeah, I think he real. I think Peter Jackson realized that, but he didn't care because of the joke, like you said. I think it was just like he was like, I don't care if it breaks the world the audience will find it funny, you know? Yeah. We do also get, we didn't even mention the, the, the attack of the Ents on the battle of Isengard and, 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 and all of that, which looked amazing. I like the breaking of the dam and the way that the, the Ents all sort of take root to withstand that flowing water. It was all cool. Um, and then after the, that battle's all over, we get, we get sort of an homage to the Flotsam and Jetsam chapter from the books uh, at least in the extended version we do, where Mary and Pippin find all the, the, the pipe weed and uh, we hear them like bogarting it in there and not wanting to share it with, uh, with Treebeard. And then we see smoke billowing out of the door and we just hear them laughing. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's... Uh, that's how tobacco works. Yeah, it makes, makes you all you giggly own. and hungry, yep. right? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, so I just, I just, I like that nod. Yeah, I love that in the I love that in the Battle of Isengard, it's it's nature physically like the Ents taking back, like fighting against, you know, industrialization, everything. But I also love the moment of like the flooding of all of their inner workings underneath completely destroying that. And it got me thinking about how like, you know, they're the shows that are like, you know, 10,000 years after humans and stuff. And you see like what happens And, and like the way that nature will just eventually overtake anything that you make. Nature will somehow eventually overtake it and like you just you can't you can try to you can try to basically you know in our social in our society here we have built a certain comfort in certain ways and like we just have to work around nature and i think that that's like a really i I love that idea that like nature is still finding a way no matter what we do but uh the idea is that put that that puts like almost an adversarial sense to it um and and I, I I get what you're saying, but but it's also like, like um, if you build a house, you're you're impeding on nature. So it's like, what are you gonna do? Yeah. Not live in a house? 
Uh, and that's right. what I mean. Like, like, you know, even like roots of a tree could get underneath the foundation of your house and, and start to mess up your house and everything. So it's just in terms of that, you, it's, it, I like the idea that nature will somehow always uh, regulate itself back. Right. I mean, and that's what a lot of the like why the hippie movement really love this book. Right. I think is, is sort of these moments of yeah. uh, anti-industrializations and return to, you know, valuing the woods and, and, and the world and Mother Earth and all that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's all it all works. And, and I, I definitely see what they're saying. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's some direct like on the nose commentary about like the fires of industrialization and metal and, and stone and gears like, and yeah, yeah, that's the gears yeah. will grind up the, you know, it's like all this stuff that that uh, that Saruman's saying where he's saying like, this is the, the industrialization of the world. And that's what this all represents. Right. So uh, we got to talk a little bit more about this Osgiliath stuff, because uh, when the Wraith eventually shows up, the Nazgul shows up uh and Frodo's going to put the ring on and Sam tackles him and Frodo like flips out and almost like he pulls a sword on Sam. And I think that's the, the, you know, the climax moment of, of this, all of this confrontation that's been going on between the two and, and Sam can't believe it just like, you know, Frodo can't believe it because he was, he was tainted by the ring at that time. But the way that Sam reacts and he's just so sad for Frodo more than anything. Uh, and the speech that he gives there is, is definitely you know, one of my favorite parts of the two towers. And I feel like it's kind of a callback to some of the conversations they have in the book, although it's a little different, you know, and, and, uh, yeah. In the appendices, I think they said that there was the beginning of the speech was in the book and the end of the speech was in the book, but they filled in some stuff in the middle in order to make it like a narrative because basically he was like narrating. It was like flashing to scenes of Helm's Deep, flashing to scenes of Isengard and flashing to all these things to show that like there's some good in the world and it's worth fighting for. Basically, it's kind of like the yeah. moral, the moral compass at the end of this movie. Yeah, it, it all, that all works really, really, really well. And, and like I said before, I think Sean Astin is, is Samwise is just astoundingly good in this movie. So there's a moment when one of Faramir's men says to him that if if he lets because of their ways, if he lets Frodo, Sam and, and uh and Gollum go that he'll it'll he'll be forfeiting his life and and then that's also showing like the arc of the character he's he's completely changed at this point and it seems like he hears like the implication I got is that he hears Sam's speech and is moved by it so I think that's another moment of of Sam's you know eloquence working on on, on a character here yeah uh, that's the implication that. I got from it too like he overhears it so th- we also then end on the movie with Smeagol and Gollum. Um, talking to each other. Oh, and so that also introduces this subplot that we actually get in the movie that's not really in the book, and that's the idea that Smeagol drives away Gollum and tells him to, to not, you know, go away, not come back, and then he does go away, and then he returns after Frodo betrays him to to Faramir and and those and the men, and that's something we talked about how like that was kind of implied in the book, like that maybe that that further cemented his the betrayal and why he, uh, Gollum turns on them, but he had already been planning to take them to Shelob before the stuff with Faramir happens in the book. Whereas here, it seems like it's just now maybe kind of arriving at like, that's going to be the true, my true ideas. I'm going to let them right. die. And Smeagol and Gollum are in agreement. And there's that kind of like chilling moment where they, they both seem to be in agreement about taking them to, to see her and like, and then they'll get him once they're dead. Um, and just some great moments of like Andy Serkis talking to himself and it's, it's really cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. And we got to talk about Andy Serkis cause we haven't really all that much. Like I said, motion capture at this point wasn't really being done, uh, in this, in the way that was eventually developed for this. There was, they would basically do a take where 
they would do a real take with Andy Serkis in there doing the motions of what Gollum would be doing and actually acting everything out. And then they would do a take without Andy Serkis in there as far. And it's like a reference cut or a reference take, basically, in order to they would just place in the CG character in the scene and kind of follow what he was doing on another screen and, and just paint him in, basically. But what they realized, what Peter Jackson realized is that he loved the facial expressions, the the physicality that Andy Serkis was bringing to it. So they developed, basically, placing the CG character just over top of Andy Serkis' performance and painting out, hit, painting him out of the frame. So it's it's all Andy Serkis, and, you know, the, we would see the development of kind of the full mocap performance and, and the respect that... that it comes with it now because I think it's still underappreciated because of what goes into it. It is a full performance. It should be, it should be, you should be able to be like, I fully believe that Andy Serkis at this point for Caesar should have at least been nominated for a performance because he Caesar in the planet of the apes, the new planet of the apes movies. Oh, or at least for Gollum because, because he's doing something with these characters that is so interesting and the fact that he's doing it in these CG environments that are like basically people are seeing it as not his performance. Somebody's painting it in. And it's a it's a marriage of the two. But it's I, I, like I don't think you can you can speak enough about what Andy Serkis has done for motion capture performance as well as just like how great of an actor he is in general. He's yeah. a phenomenal actor that I don't think gets quite enough credit for for what he's been able to well, do. Well, and, and 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 Peter Jackson leaning into that with oh, the creation of, the, of this character and and deciding to put it on film. Yeah, I agree and it's it's all, you know, I definitely want to heap as much praise as possible on it cuz I I totally agree. I mean, Andy Serkis is the motion capture guy. I think when Mark Ruffalo started doing motion capture for the Hulk, uh he went to Andy Serkis and Andy Serkis gave him a bunch of pointers and and he's just like he's the master of it at this point. And uh, there was stuff in the appendices and you could see that people were disrespecting him, not dis- not disrespecting necessarily, but not realizing the importance of the performance that he was giving, because what would happen was some of the actors like performing with him, the initial run where they were just doing the motion capture of what like Andy Serkis was in the scene doing the motion. The other actors would be giving wouldn't be giving 100 percent because it wasn't going to be the actual used version because they would use the version that there was nobody there and they were just reacting to nothing basically the reference uh the reference take and so they would they would you know they would act with him and do whatever and then eventually Andy Serkis was like look I'm here giving you this performance for a reason like act with me go 100% with me and just to know that like that's that was the mindset going in and it wasn't yeah it, it's it's just unfortunate and and knowing what he brought to it is it's you know we talked about it enough it's groundbreaking and and it changed it changed filmmaking forever yeah well, man, I think that's a good place to sort of wrap this up. I do want to save a little bit for after for the very end. I want to I want to weigh in on like where we're at with Fellowship and Two Towers and which uh, which of these films we currently like better, um, just subjectively. And we can give that at the very end. But I also wanted to just say like revisiting Middle Earth uh, for Two Towers has been really enjoyable, and we're we're kind of doing it around the time that this new Tolkien movie is coming out, and and and. Um, it's just it's been fun and and I always like coming to Middle Earth and I think it's an important piece of like fantasy history and and then and, you know obviously f- for the films that were made and how much it affected the industry I think this is a really important series of movies and uh, I look forward to finishing it out one day with the Return of the King. Yeah, I agree. The, I mean, like I've talked about before, these movies are are so formative for me and and like made me fall in love with with film in such a deep and and profound way. So I'm really looking forward to getting into Return of the King at some point. So before we finish up, too, I just wanted to announce we are going to be covering Terror at 30,000 Feet, which um, you might not recognize at first. Um, That is the name of a 
Richard Matheson short story that was adapted by The Twilight Zone in multiple versions and put on for it's a sort of an iconic episode. There, there's something on the wing, you know, it's parodied by Jim Carrey, I think, in Ace Ventura and, and all this stuff. Right. Like it's, it's, it's actually a pretty iconic moment from Twilight Zone. Yeah. And for sure. uh, we're going to be covering that and we're going to watch the new adaptation uh, which is the Jordan Peele produced uh, the new Twilight Zone on CBS. So I'm excited to watch that. We hope you join us for that. It's going to be a, a one-off episode. And then we're going to get into Good Omens, which we are doing a giveaway for, which we are going to be announcing on social media. We have six copies of the books that we got from the publisher that we're going to be uh, giving out to our social media followers and listeners. Um, if you wanted to get in on that, there's going to be instructions on each post. Basically, it's going to be like tag some friends, retweet, follow us, and you're going to enter in to win. Uh, we just did that for Pet Cemetery, and we're really excited to do it again for Good Omens. So a lot to come from Make the Film. Make sure to stick around and, and subscribe so that you can get all our new content. So I just wanted to shout out uh, one of our patrons who I know is a huge Lord of the Rings fans, and that's Myla J. Um, thank you so much for being a patron. You you help keep this show going. If you wanted to find out how to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film, and you can see what all sorts of bonus content that we have on there. Um, we just released our 12th episode on the Pet Cemetery film from 1989, where we compare it to the new movie and to the book. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all those at ink to film and join our Council of Inklings on Facebook. We post polls and other interesting adaptation-related content. And another way to help the show out for free is to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, uh, especially helpful on iTunes. Uh, we'd love to hear back from you whether or not you like this episode and these series of episodes we've done about uh, all the Lord of the Rings stuff. Thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts, and thank you to Music Archive for the use of our intro and outro music. Okay, man, here we are at the end, and... Uh, we, I want to just take a moment and talk about where we're at with these films now that we've seen them both after watching, after reading the books. Um, you said that The Two Towers was your favorite film in the past, but it sounds to me like maybe that's changed. Uh, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, that's currently where I stand is I, I enjoy Fellowship more. It's just this perfect amalgamation of, of a road movie and and the, the setting out from the Shire and the beginning of a story. It's just such a classic classic tale and uh, actually reminds me in the appendices they were talking about beowulf quite a lot as as influence um specifically for the rohan scenes in in two towers but i'm excited mm. to get to return of the king as well because i really enjoy return of the king and i honestly like in my memory and it's not to say that this is a bad one but two towers is my third favorite of them uh because the the finale of of return of the king is so powerful um but we'll we'll get there when we get there. I'll see I'll see if my ranking changes and how I feel. Um, I think like I, I think it might have something to do with what I was talking about in the episode that that sort of middle syndrome of of being in the middle and and having to tell a story but also not really having an ending or a beginning and and you're kind of just sagging in the middle and I think the Battle of Helm's Deep does a lot to make this film amazing and as well as many of the other character interactions and some of the some of the building out of the world that we get but for now I think I enjoy Fellowship more than Two Towers and and Return of the King will be undetermined. I'm totally with you man and uh I just want to shut like as much as I I agree I I I really really like Fellowship and and enough to where it's my favorite. Uh, everything about Boromir's death at the end of Fellowship is really heart-wrenching and really affecting, and I think adds a really nice cap to that movie. And um, 
like we talked about in the beginning of this episode, beginnings are great because it's the introduction to the characters, introduction to the world. Endings can be painful, yet are also really powerful parts of stories where everything's coming to an end and you have to stick the landing. So I think inherently both of those things are going to have a lot more weight than something in the middle like this. And I just want to give them props because, like, I think they did a great job at taking this middle material and making a really good movie out of it. And um, as much as I nitpicked things, you know what I mean? Like, because I, I had to. Um, it's still an incredible movie. And I think it was a really it's it's an important piece of this trilogy of movies. And you, you kind of can't view it as something separate. Like, it really is integral to this story. And it does the thing it needs to do. And, uh, yeah, I just I really enjoyed watching it. But ultimately, I'm with you. I think Fellowship I still prefer of these two movies and I'm going to hold out and see how Return of the King strikes me this time, this next time I watch it. Something you just said I, I want to jump on real quick is the uh, the idea that the I think something about beginnings that I really enjoy and part of the reason why I go back to Fellowship as, as my favorite of these two at least for now um, is the possibilities, right? The possibilities of what could what could be coming going forward in the, the outside of the adventure and then, yeah, the bittersweet nature of the ending like you're so happy for everything to have to have ended and and like you know if it's a satisfying ending you enjoy it but it's it, yeah the middle is just a it's a it's a beast to to try to handle and and I think they did a great job all right, man, I think that's a good place to leave it. We will be back to middle earth um I don't know exactly how far away it'll be, but um w- we want to get to it, so we will be back. And, and we hope that you check out some of our other offerings. We've covered a lot of other fantasy novels and fantasy movies. So if you're a fantasy fan, there should be a lot more in there for you, for you to look for, for Mink to Film. But until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>